Welcome to week one of Urban Legends. If we haven't met before, I'm Ashley and I'm the senior pastor here at Hope. I'm part of this amazing team of people, this movement who desires to see people experience God and discover the hope found in Jesus and he changes our lives, come on. We believe that church should be enjoyed, never endured. So you'll see, we like to switch up our series and keep things fresh and engaging. So we're talking about urban legends. It's a memorable way to remember the things that we're learning. Maybe you know someone who's seen Bigfoot's tracks, or maybe you grew up reading about Rip Van Winkle. He was actually from New York, apparently. You know, we've all heard these stories that get passed from person to person, and the same thing happens with our faith. And we're gonna look at what the Word of God says around some popular misconceptions and have a lot of fun with these spiritual urban legends. So when I was a kid, I had a big fear of the Loch Ness Monster. I know, I know, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's over in Scotland, we're here. I don't know what I was thinking, but I seriously, when I saw that black and white picture that kicks off our promo where it's like supposed to be Nessie's head, um, yeah, it's actually a, a toy submarine with like a toy duck head glued to the top of it. It was a photo that was made in 1934, and someone admitted it was a complete it was a complete hoax. Isn't that crazy? But I was scared forever. Can y'all say Nessie? Now say it with like a little Scottish accent. Nessie. I don't even know how you say it. Top of the morning to you lads and lasses. I think that might be Irish. All right. In 1852, villagers got their pitchforks out and they were ready to battle a sea serpent, which I'm like, that's impressive. If you think there's a sea serpent coming and you're like, we've got this farming implement. We're definitely gonna win this battle. They got out to the Loch Ness Lake and they discovered that it was a pony taking a bath. <laughs> they took their pitchforks and went home. And then there were footprints discovered around that time that were made near the lake and they determined that those were actually a hoax as well. They were made by a stuffed, like taxidermied hippo foot, which is very weird if you think about it. The fact that someone had a hippo foot lying around and they decided to take it out by the water and it's like, you just see him wait late at night carrying it around like, what are you doing with that hippo foot? I'm making footprints for a hoax. So scientists have dredged, scooped, and explored the floor of the Loch Ness for bones. They found nothing. And you know Scotland's too cold for reptiles, you know, like that to survive? Also, the Loch Ness Lake isn't big enough to feed a giant sea creature. It's about the same size as Cuca Lake. Which, by the way, did you know the Finger Lakes have their own urban legends? Crazy, I fell down like a deep dive rabbit hole reading about those this week. In 2019, a scientific study took a look at the DNA in the Loch Ness, and it determined there were a lot of things in there. The biggest DNA was eel. So they figure the Loch Ness Monster is probably a big eel. We can go ahead to the next notes. The truth is, Nessie, doesn't exist. There's no evidence of a Loch Ness Monster, and every sighting's been refuted, yet the urban legend remains, you know? It still has a hold on people. I, it had a hold on me as a tiny child, like, don't ever want to go near a lake. And the same thing happens with our faith. Well-intentioned people say things that sound plausible, but they're not in the Bible, or they're taken out of context. And in this series, we're going to look at claims about God's nature, we're gonna learn, is there actually an unforgivable sin? Does God really give and take away like Job said? 
Will God give me more than I can handle? And we'll also learn how to look at the Bible for ourselves and look at who God is through the whole Bible in the context of the cross. Come on. Next week, we actually have a special guest preacher who you've never heard on a Sunday morning before, and we are really excited about that. I can't wait for you to hear him. I got to read the message, got a sneak preview, and it's amazing. You don't want to miss next week. Make sure you bring someone with you. But today is the biggest urban legend that I hear most often, and it is, is money evil? Dun, dun, dun. That's right. We're talking about money. And I love the fact that the Bible has wisdom for every area of our lives. I love that God is not silent, and he gives us the tools that we need to thrive. And if you're feeling weird about money today, we're going to help you with that weirdness, and we're going to clear up some confusion around money so that we can be free. The number one thing that we get prayer requests about is finances. The biggest thing we have questions about is finances. And yet sometimes we stay silent on this subject because we're afraid. But God's not afraid. We're going to look at what he has to say to us. The other day, my seven-year-old Sophie was like, hey, can we buy this thing? And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. It's not in our budget. And she's like, well, my friend's mom, you know, my friend just said he, his mom gives them like a credit card and you don't actually have to pay with any money. I'm like, no, no, no. She, she pays a bill later, honey. She's like, oh, I thought it was just free when you hand them the card. <laughs> have you ever seen a kid put money in their mouth? Yuck. I don't know why, but it's like a draw for kids to want to do that. Money's definitely been around, and you don't know where it's been. It's like, take that thing out of your mouth. Depending on how you were raised, you might have different experiences around money. You might have different beliefs around it. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money, that is the greedy desire for it, and the willingness to gain it unethically, is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through and through with many sorrows. So what's that saying? Is it saying money's evil? No. We take that verse out of context. We say money's evil. It's not what Paul's saying. He's saying the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Having our identity, having our safety, having our security in money instead of God is a root that doesn't serve us. And we just talked about this in our root series. We love pulling up roots that don't serve us, that aren't true, that aren't in God's word, and putting down his truth. The truth is money is a tool. It's not the goal of our existence. If you make it your goal to make money, your life is going to be kind of miserable. The Bible says everything is God's, and we're just managers of his stuff. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything is God's. Everything in this room is God's. Everything at your house is God. Your children are God's. Everything is God's. Everything means everything. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, It is he who gives you the power to get wealth. Everything belongs to God, including wealth. Wealth comes from God. He gives us the power to get wealth. Some people think wealth comes from the devil. That's a poverty mindset, and that's a lie from the devil. Wealth comes from God. Many people in the Bible were wealthy. You think about Job, he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. Sounds like in Aladdin when they're singing about Prince Ali, you know, it's like 75 golden camels. He had lots of stuff. 
David left an inheritance to build the temple in Jerusalem that's worth billions today. No one would remember the Good Samaritan if he only had good intentions. The Good Samaritan was that guy who came along someone on the side of the road who had been robbed, who was left for dead, and he took him, he took him to a place to get lodging and he paid for his medical care. He did that because he had the financial means to do so. He had money to back up his intentions. Money's not inherently good or evil, it's what we do with it that matters. Jesus shared several stories about people who were entrusted with God's stuff. And over and over in the Bible, it shows how we are managers of everything that God owns. The parable of the talents was one where a businessman went on a trip. He gave his servants different amounts. When he came back from his trip, some had invested it, and he trusted them with more. There's another parable, the parable of the minas. Same premise, except those who invested well, they weren't trusted with more money. They were trusted with cities. That's crazy. And the parable of the shrewd manager who dealt cunningly with his master's riches. Luke 16.10 says, Jesus said, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. He's saying those who can be trusted with very little, they have the character to be trusted with more. And those who can't handle even a little bit, they'll do the same thing with more. And sometimes we say, why doesn't God trust me more? Could it be that he doesn't want to crush us? Could it be because we're not ready to steward it just yet? Verse 11, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And we're going to look at that verse throughout the day today, but it says unrighteous mammon. What is that? Mammon is money, and unrighteous is the opposite of righteous. Righteous means right standing with God. We're made righteous by trusting in Jesus. We're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. For money, if you look at us with Jesus, it means all our debts are paid. All of our sin debt is paid. He took on our sins. We receive his righteousness. Nothing is owed. We are free. Before we trust in Jesus, though, we're unrighteous. And when we trust in him, we become the righteousness of God. That means we're blessed wherever we go and whatever we do. That means we're the head and not the tail. That means we're above only and never beneath. Come on, that means that we have right standing with God because of Jesus. Even though we have right standing, our money is still unrighteous. It's unredeemed. It's suffering from the effects of the fall, the effects of sin and death from Adam and Eve in the garden at the very beginning. And just like our bodies age and our stuff rusts, and decays, our money is also under the curse. And the way we redeem our money is through tithing. Romans eleven sixteen says, if the first piece of bread is offered to God, then the whole loaf is made holy. When the first part of anything is offered to God, then the rest of it is redeemed too. So it's the same thing with our salvation. Jesus is holy. And when he gave his life on the cross, it was to redeem all of us. He was the first given to redeem the rest. 1 Corinthians 5.20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Jesus was the first. He's God's tithe. And tithing is an act of faith. God didn't wait to see if we would clean up 
you know, to give Jesus first. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. God gave Jesus in faith that we would believe. He loved us, and he had the faith that we would love him back. But he didn't know that when he gave Jesus. He believed that we would. In the same way, we return the first 10% of our income to God before we pay our bills by faith, and the rest is blessed. It's because the first part is holy. It's set apart, it's righteous, and it's blessed. Leviticus 27.30 says, One-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. Everything belongs to God. But then this is saying the first 10% is set apart and holy. And he says, bring that holy part back to him. We don't give it to him because it's not ours to give. We're managers of his stuff. We bring it to him. It's like if you brought my car back to me after borrowing it and you're like, here, I got you a gift. I'm like, I already own this. Thank you, though. Deuteronomy 14.23 says, Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. I love this. Bring your tithe to the Lord's house, other verses say. The local church, the place where we honor God's name. Do you realize this place is holy? This is a place where we gather together to honor God's name, to hear from God, to experience his presence together. This is the designated place of worship, the place he chooses for his name to be honored. And we have our tithes. We don't want to keep in our house what belongs in God's house. We want to bring it to God so he can bless it. Just like the little boy brought his lunch to Jesus, he had, you know, some fish and some bread. And he gave it to Jesus. Jesus blessed it. He multiplied it to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. But if the boy had kept it, that's all he would have had. One lunch for one person. In God's hand, it was multiplied. Why does God ask us to bring it to him? The rest of the verse tells us, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. To put God first in our lives. If we can trust God with our money, we won't be a slave to it. We can walk in freedom. We can trust God as our provider. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We want to replace that with the love of God. We want to put him first. An urban legend is that, you know, money or a job is our provider, but the truth is our provider is God. Money is the number one competitor of our heart. Matthew 6, 21 says, Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Where you put your money is where your heart will be. When you tithe your money to God in faith, even when you don't feel like it, your heart will follow. You trust him with it. Another urban legend is that being under grace means that anything that requires discipline is not grace. That's not true. You can rest in Jesus' finished work at the cross. You can live by his principles, not to earn your salvation, but to thrive in life to walk in his ways, because his ways work. Jesus said you should tithe, yes, but don't forget the other things, the more important things. When you trust in Jesus, you're blessed. And you're so blessed, you have extra to give. Most of the gifts in the New Testament were more than the tithe offered out of just a love for Jesus, a thankfulness to Jesus. I thank God, like we were singing today. Like Zacchaeus, Jesus showed him grace. He forgave him. 
And, and Zacchaeus is like, I want to give away half of my possessions and pay back everybody four times what I stole from them. Jesus didn't tell him to do that. He just was responding to grace. Or the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with perfume worth a year's wages. She did that as an act of worship. Not because anybody demanded it, but because she had a love that was overflowing. So how much do we bring? 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside some income to the extent God has blessed you. Bring to the extent God has blessed you. If God has trusted you with a little, be faithful with that little. If he's trusted you with a lot, be faithful with the lot. I met somebody at a ministry conference about 12 years ago, and they weren't paid a lot, but they were choosing to live on 10% and give God 90% of their income for a year. That was so inspiring to me. Like, wow, what do I have extra that I don't even realize? So it says, set aside some income to the extent God has blessed you on the first day of the week. This is a part of our worship. This week we added boxes to the back walls of the auditorium so that you can give at any time. You can give when you come in. You can give when you leave. You don't have to wait for people holding buckets. It's just an offering between you and God. We give not out of religious duty, but out of our relationship with Jesus with the same joy and anticipation and excitement that we give to those we love. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, I love this. Let giving flow from your heart, not from religious duty. Let it spring up freely from the joy of giving, all because God loves hilarious generosity. Hilarious. That, that's the closest to the Greek word there. Hilarious generosity. Generosity that just like makes him laugh, that makes us smile. That's like, God, I can't believe I get to give this to you. This is hilarious. I love it. Letting giving flow from the overflow of our heart, from the joy in our heart. Giving in response to what God has given to us. Verse 8, yes, God is more than ready to overwhelm you with every form of grace. So you'll have more than enough of everything, every moment and in every way. He'll make you overflow with abundance in every good thing that you do. My gosh, that verse is so good. Everything, every moment, every way, overflow. Note the order. God blesses you. Then out of that abundance, you are a blessing. God leads and we respond. We give out of the overflow he's given to us. And sometimes we have more overflow than we realize. I have a friend whose wife went from working full-time to part-time. And they decided, you know what? We're going to keep giving God the same amount anyway, even though our income is changing. And they did that, and it was sacrificial. And it's so cool. His wife got a raise three times in like six months. I love God's faithfulness. Maybe you know that you have overflow, but you're embarrassed by it. Don't be embarrassed. You're not embarrassed by good health or a great marriage or a good job. Don't be embarrassed by riches. Your wealth comes from God, and you're blessed to be a blessing. Verse 10, this generous God who supplies abundant seed for the farmer, which becomes bread for our meals, is even more extravagant towards you. First, he supplies every need plus more, then he multiplies the seed as you sow it so that the harvest of your generosity will grow. He supplies what we need, and he supplies extra for us to sow. It's like an apple, and I've used this illustration before, but I think it's so good. A lot of you have been apple picking recently. I've seen it on your social media. 
the apple, you eat the fruit part, and then you have seeds. Don't eat the seeds, that's a bad idea. The seeds, there's like 10 seeds in an apple. They're to sow, they're the part that's not to eat. 10 seeds produce 10 trees, which can yield like 8,000 apples a year for up to 30 years, which produces 240,000 apples from one fruit, from the seeds of one fruit. God supplies seed plus more. That's such a good illustration. And the extra is multiplied as we sow it. I love that verse. Then he multiplies the seed as you sow it. When did he multiply the widow's oil? When she started pouring it. When did Abraham become the father of many nations? When he offered his first and only son. When does God multiply our seed? As we sow it. Whatever we sow is multiplied. The more we sow, the more he has to work with. Let's look at the back at the second part of Luke 16, 11. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, which is unrighteous wealth, who will commit to you to your trust the true riches? So we talked about the mammon, which is the least. But what are the true riches? What are the greater things? Money is a treasure on earth, but there's a treasure in heaven. Matthew 6, 19 says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Our treasures here, you know that. They don't last forever. They break down. People can steal them. At the end of your life, they'll go to someone else who will decide what to do, whether to honor God with your wealth or not. How do we store up treasure in heaven? Well, the only thing that lasts for eternity is God's word and people. And God's word is already established. But people, we can invest in people. People are a treasure to God. He says, we're the treasure in the field. We're the pearl of great price. We're the fishers of men. And a fisherman's reward is fish. People. There's nothing wrong with owning a nice house and a nice car. But if all you have to show for your life is moth-eaten, rusty toys, then you have not invested wisely. You've settled for an empty life when you could have a life full of eternal fruit of other people's lives that are changed. Come on. We all have an amazing inheritance in Jesus. The Bible says we are co-heirs with Jesus. Everything he receives, we also receive. It's amazing just by believing in him. But there's a treasure and a reward that he talks about that's also conditional. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. We're co-workers with God. Such an honor that he uses us to save people. We're co-workers, and our wages, our reward, is seeing people's lives changed. It's having spiritual children and eternal friends. Think about it. What's more rewarding than the labor of childbirth? As in the natural, so in the spiritual. What's more fulfilling than co-laboring with Jesus to see people trust him? There's nothing. When you tell someone about God, or you're a part of what God is doing here through your giving or your volunteering, when you're part of hands being raised every Sunday, you're a part of an eternal miracle. Come on. 
When you invest in people, your investment multiplies because one person trusts in Jesus, but then they go and tell their friends and their family for generations. Whatever is sown is multiplied. In this life, you might never see the full harvest of your generosity, but one day you will. And on that day, you'll share in your master's happiness, the Bible says. Some of you are going to be surprised when you see all the lives that are changed because of you. You have no idea how many people your life has touched. Paul told the Thessalonians that they're his crown and joy. Uh, chapter 2, verse 19, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Paul's crown is not just the people that he's leading to Jesus. It's everyone that they led. It's probably millions of people over centuries. We're part of Paul's fruit. We're Gentiles. Imagine if Paul has not invested what God had given him. What if he was afraid? What if he just focused on tent making, you know, making the best tents he could for the Lord? There's nothing wrong with that. But if all you do is make tents and you never pass along the grace that you've been given, you're missing out on your purpose. Paul says our gifts are an offering to God, credited to our account. Philippians 4.17, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Your gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You know, another urban legend that we hear is that the church wants my money. I think about that and I laugh because it's like, what is the church? Well, really, it's the person sitting next to you. It's the family of Jesus. It's the body of believers. Does the person next to you want your money? You can ask them. I don't think they do. Did you come to church for the money? I don't think you did. Do I want your money? If I'm in this for the money, I chose the wrong profession. <laughs> I don't do this for the money. You could have paid me enough to do this for the money. I do it for Jesus. <laughs> Come on. Like Paul, I don't desire your gifts. I desire for more to be credited to your account. I want your life to thrive now, but also impact your eternity. I want you to get to heaven and be surprised by all the fruit and the rewards that you have there by the treasure that lasts. Another urban legend is that tithing is part of the law and Jesus fulfilled the law so we shouldn't do it. And it is true, he, it was in the law. There are other things that were under the law that we still follow though too. We don't steal and we don't kill. You know, they're, they're good things. But tithing also existed before the law. It's first mentioned in Genesis 14. And the first time something is mentioned is significant. Abraham had just returned from a great victory, Genesis 14, 18. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Melchizedek came out to him. He brought out bread and wine. What does that sound like? Communion. Here in the book of Genesis, we have a symbol of Jesus' death on the cross. Verse 19, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Next part of that verse. And Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. So Melchizedek is like, God is so good. He has blessed you so much. Praise God. 
And Abraham's like, you know what? I am blessed. And so I want to give to God. He had something to give because God had blessed him. We don't tithe out of an obligation. We tithe out of a revelation of God's goodness. We tithe out of an understanding that we are blessed. We tithe out of a heart response to God. He's the source of our supply. And with this revelation, we acknowledge him, we honor him, we worship him with our giving. So that was in Genesis. Now we're gonna fast forward almost towards the end of the Bible to after Jesus's death in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 7.3 says, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Salem means peace. So he is also king of peace. In the kingdom of God, peace always follows righteousness. When you're conscious of his righteousness, you don't think about your shortcomings. And then you have peace with God. Remember that we are righteous because of Jesus. He's the first fruit of those raised from the dead. Our finances are righteous because of the tithe, the first part that's given. Verse 7, Melchizedek towers out of the past without record of family ties, no account of beginning or end. In this way, he is like the son of God, one huge priestly presence dominating the landscape always. Verse 8, here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So in Genesis, Melchizedek brought out the bread and the wine, and he's proclaiming Jesus' death. But here, mortal men receive tithes, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. When we tithe today, we are proclaiming Jesus is alive, that he lives, that we believe he lives. Otherwise, why would we do any of this? And when we do that, people see evidence of God's blessing on our lives. And they will say, Jesus is alive. How could he not be? What he did for her, what he did in his life? Oh my gosh. Here, we tithe to a church, but in heaven, Jesus receives them right now. The word receives is in the present tense. He's receiving them as we give them. Jesus receives them. This is a really important understanding. This is a really important revelation. Some people say, I don't believe in giving my money to an organization or to organize religion. Me neither. I believe in giving it to Jesus. The way he tells us to do that is through the church. Here mortal men receive tithes, but in heaven Jesus receives them and our giving testifies that we believe that he lives. He's alive. My husband and I both started tithing in high school when we heard these teachings. When we got married, we married our money in one bank account and we tithed from that, you know, at every job we've had ever since, starting with 10%. When we were between churches, I had been on staff leading an executive team at a church for 10 years. We were between churches. We still tithed at the churches we went to visit because our tithes go to Jesus and we don't want to miss an opportunity to give to him. And when we got planted here, the first Sunday we came to Hope, we tithed. And now we've, you know, been here, you know, we started, we were not on staff long before we were part of the staff team. We tithed because this is our church. This is our family. This is the body that we're a part of. And maybe you're thinking, well, what if I don't know every detail of Hope Church? Or what if I don't agree with everything? Do you believe in Jesus? Tithe to him. That's the point. 
Don't add conditions and urban legends that you heard from people. The tithe is a hard decision to trust God. Don't let that impact your eternal fruit. The truth is God doesn't need your money. He owns everything. Remember what we started the day with? He owns everything. Remember the song we sang today? In heaven, the streets are paved with gold. Gold is so common that they use it for pavement. You think he needs your money? He wants your heart. He wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to have treasure in heaven. Come on. The devil doesn't want the church to prosper because a prosperous church can change the world. Globally, 3% of the church tithes. Yeah. If the whole church tithed, we could feed the world. We could cure diseases. We could reach everybody. You might be thinking, we're just one church in Corning, New York. We can't do everything, but we can reach our region. We can fight hunger through our food pantry and our benevolence giving. We can support the church in Africa, Pastor Henry's church that we're partnering with. We can help the church in the Ukraine. They sent us pictures this week of how they're still very much fighting a war over there through our missions giving. We can pay down our debt through our building giving so that we're in a financial position to go back to Elmira in a few years and not just reach Corning, but also Elmira. And we tithe so we can do free things for our community like robotics camp. It costs us thousands, but it's free to the people that we want to see Jesus and our hullabaloo. You know, the whole point of the hullabaloo is to see people's lives changed. More people who don't know Jesus come to that than Easter or Christmas. Because they don't believe in Easter or Christmas yet. It's meeting people where they're at. It's becoming all things to all people, like Paul said, so that we might save some. If you're a fisherman, you go where the fish are. We're fishers of men. Not because we believe in celebrating Halloween but because we believe in Jesus and lifting up his name every day, especially the days that people say aren't for him. Today is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad. If we don't redeem it, who will? What if we were born for such a time as this to reach that person at your work? What about that person who needs Jesus on your street? That person who's not gonna be spending time with God in eternity because they don't know him. Everything that we sow, God will grow. We sow, we water, God grows it. It's a promise. All of this is possible because we get to reap what Jesus sowed. As we sow seeds, we're just doing what Jesus did for us. Unless a seed is planted, it remains a single seed. But when it's planted, it bears much fruit. God gave Jesus so that we could be set free. He took on all our shortcomings. And when we trust him, he gives us credit for his righteousness. We go from unrighteous to righteous in God's sight. We get credit for all the good things that he did. And he takes all the bad things, all the things that were tripping us up and holding us back, all the things we weren't meant to carry or experience, he takes those and he gives us the life we were created for. And he does that simply by believing. 